Okay, wait, wait, just a second. I got to plug this. Yow! It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 145 for May 31st, 2009. I had a great awakening. All the pundits and geeks have started writing about Windows 7. So it seemed to me that I had better catch up with the pack. If I didn't, I would risk losing my geeky pundit membership card, the one with the really neat gold symbol in the lower right corner. Well, shortly before Memorial Day, I had both the time I needed and the computer I needed. So I installed Windows 7 on a machine that dual boots Ubuntu Linux. And so far, I have to tell you that I really like the combination. Windows 7 is the easiest version of Windows ever. Sort of. And Ubuntu is certainly one of the easiest Linux distributions. Now, that doesn't mean that Windows 7 is without challenges and annoyances. And the challenges will begin during the process of deciding which version you want to buy when they're available to be purchased. The new operating system is expected to be available for sale this fall. Sometimes Microsoft learns from experience, but sometimes it doesn't. And apparently somebody thought that having more than just a couple of versions of the operating system was a really good idea. Consider the competition. Apple's OS X comes in a single configuration. Most distributions of Linux come in a single configuration. If you want Windows 7, you're going to have to choose from among a bunch of versions. So in honor of that decision by Redmond, I offer these names. Windows 7 Yuck. That would be the version nobody wants, but it's the one that's going to be on low-end computers. Followed by Windows 7 Limited. That's the version that works for people who don't need very much. Third from the bottom would be Windows 7 Almost Home. This will work okay at home, most of the time. Windows 7 Nearly Office. This is the version that most Office users will probably get, because it'll work acceptably in an Office situation. Nearing the top of the pack, there would be Windows 7 T's. That's the version that shows you what you might have had if you'd been willing to give Microsoft a few more dollars. Windows 7 Network, the version that really works okay most of the time with networks. And then at the top, Windows 7 Real. That's the version most people want. Okay, those aren't Microsoft's names. I don't know whether they'll have that many versions but they're going to have a bunch of versions. And I do have a suggestion. Pick two. Windows 7 Home. That would leave out some of the high-end networking and security features. And Windows 7 Professional. That's for everybody else. Not that Microsoft will listen to what I have to say or to what I think is common sense, but I have to wonder 
Has nobody in Redmond learned about the problem of offering consumers too many choices? When you offer too many choices, a lot of people will make no choice. But there's a lot to like in Windows 7. Vista made it difficult to restore the classic start menu, and it looks like Windows 7 will make it impossible. If there's a way, I haven't yet found it. That means I can customize the new menu, but I can't eliminate it. But work with me here. That might be okay. Vista copied a trick from Apple's OS X, and that trick remains in Windows 7. Tap the Windows key, or click the Start menu, and then type the first couple of letters of a program name. Use the arrow keys as needed to position the selector, and press Enter to start a program. That means I can start Snagit by pressing the Windows key, typing SN, and Enter. Now that's a lot faster than opening a menu and navigating several levels down to snag it. I like this. User access control was one of the major annoyances with Vista and the butt of no small number of jokes. With Vista, the obvious choices were on or off. Some additional granularity was available, but it wasn't easy to find. Windows 7 now offers four basic levels, ranging from, okay, put the handcuffs on and lock them, to, let me do whatever I want. I like this. Windows Explorer, by default, includes information about the size of the computer's hard drive and how full it is. Now that's a nice feature. And if you have a LAN, network shares are immediately visible on both the computer and the network tabs. Both very nice features. However, the idiot who decided that it's a good idea not to show file extensions of known file types is apparently still employed by Microsoft. If you have several files with different extensions, but the files all have the same name, they'll all look the same. Now, it's true you see a different icon. But this is simply an invitation for a fraudster creep who can send you what he calls a text file and tell you to double-click it so that it will open. The file will have a name that ends with .txt.exe, a double extension. Well, because Microsoft Windows understands what an .exe file is, it's going to hide the .exe extension you'll see the text extension, which isn't really an extension, it's just part of the file name. You'll click it thinking you're clicking a safe text file, and the fraudster's program will run. This simply infuriates me. There is no reason Microsoft should have made this the default. It is idiotic. By way of lowering my blood pressure just a little... The taskbar has both good and bad features. There is no longer a quick launch section. This is where I've typically placed a dozen or so applications that I know I'll need on a regular basis. Well, now I can pin them to the taskbar. That, I think, may be another misguided copy from Apple's OS X. It means they're going to move around, depending on which applications are running. I think I'll probably get used to this change. I might even eventually like it, 
but I don't see a particularly good reason for making the change. On the right side of the taskbar, in the tray or notification area, some icons are hidden by default. In my case, the antivirus icon was hidden. Bad idea, but it was one that was easily fixed. If I hover a mouse over a running application on the taskbar, I'll see a thumbnail representation of what's on the screen of the application. Good idea. This can be particularly helpful if you have multiple documents open in a program, maybe two or three Word documents, for example. When the cursor is above one of them, the thumbnails are visible, so it's easy and quick to pick the one you're looking for. But I'm really impressed by the networking components of Windows 7. Connecting computers and sharing files works the way it should. Some people, seemingly damning the new operating system with faint praise, call it Vista done right. In many ways, I suppose that's true. Vista was the result of a development effort gone seriously awry. Microsoft seems to have fixed that with Windows 7, and I'm really beginning to look forward to the day when Windows 7 is released. Vista suffered and made many of its users suffer with application compatibility problems. Some versions of Windows 7 will allow users to run a virtual machine with Windows XP Service Pack 3. By contrast, however, all versions of Linux, which, by the way, is free, allow users to run Wine, which is capable of running many Windows applications. Problems with computers are hard to find. You put a technician in front of the computer and there's a really good chance the problem won't show itself. It's like taking your car into the mechanic. Windows 7 includes a problem steps recorder. This is an application that will allow the technician to see exactly what a user did leading up to the problem. As with most airplane crashes, most computer problems are really the result of user error. For those who are concerned about security and willing to shell out the extra bucks for the Ultimate or Enterprise version, it will be possible to encrypt the entire drive with BitLocker. Encryption can be applied to removable drives, too, with BitLocker to go. On the other hand, if you're concerned about security but you don't want to pay more for it, well, install TrueCrypt, a free encryption utility that's not for Microsoft. If you have tried to share files or directories between two computers on your home network, you know that it's sometimes a lot faster to just put the files on a thumb drive and take them to the other computer. Vista did a much better job in this regard, and Windows 7 makes things even better. First, Windows 7 seems to find shared folders on other computers without fail, so that's a plus. I installed Cisco's Network Magic on the Windows 7 machine, but I probably really wouldn't need it if I didn't want some of the extra monitoring and analysis features that Network Magic provides. Windows 7 has even more. It has libraries. Think of this as a file organizer. And home groups. You can think of that as network shares. The ease of use is such that you might actually think you're using a Mac. I haven't used my documents in the past because the location was restricted to drive C. I have a second drive in my computer, and that's where I want to store documents. The Windows 7 library function allows me to define a library and include files in it 
from anywhere. This might actually sell me on using that feature. But home groups is what a lot of people have been waiting for. Windows 7 automatically sets up a home group on the computer if one doesn't already exist on the network. If one already does exist on the network, you'll have the opportunity to join it. Once you've done that, you can share libraries. And you'll have the ability to require a password for access as well as to exclude certain files and directories from the share. Shared drives on other computers will be visible on Windows 7 machines, but to gain the full benefit of home groups and libraries, all computers must be running Windows 7. The setup is extraordinarily easy. Set the libraries you want to share. Make a note of the password, which will be long and ugly, although you can change it. And start using the feature. That's it. As soon as you do that, every Windows 7 computer on your network will have access to your shared files. You probably know I don't rate applications that aren't yet available for sale. So far, with only limited experience to guide me, I can say that Windows 7 looks very promising. If you download the release candidate, make sure, however, that you do not install it on a production system or on your primary computer. If you'd like more information, you can visit the Microsoft Windows 7 website, and guess what? You'll find a link to that site from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. Video. I've been putting off a review of Adobe's video applications for several reasons. The most critical reason is that I really don't know a lot about video. I've spent some time in video control rooms. I've written a couple of industrial video scripts, shot the video, or at least supervised it, and then supervised the editing. But that was back in the day when you took video to a studio and handed it over to professionals. These days, that professional editing suite might be on a PC or a Mac, and instead of costing a quarter of a million dollars, it might set you back no more than $6,000, and that would include the computer. In other words, desktop video production makes it possible for anyone to create high-quality video as long as that person is willing to take the time needed to learn how to use the tools. Your video production might begin with Adobe On Location, continue with Adobe Premiere, and conclude with Adobe After Effects. Or there might be some side trips that involve Flash, Photoshop, or even Illustrator. On Location accepts input from a Firewire-based video camera, but I'll be using a video provided by Adobe in my review. The On Location interface provides considerable control over the camera, and it includes all of the critical monitoring tools that professionals need to ensure high-quality video. These include a software vector scope and a waveform monitor. These help optimize the footage while simplifying camera calibration and focus. In video production, you create a series of sequences that are typically called shots. You review them, then export them from on-location. Although some editing is possible with this on-location tool, it is not really designed for or intended to be used for editing. On-location creates, organizes, and prepares the shots for later use in the other applications. It works with professional-level cameras from Panasonic and Sony without the need for transcoding. Accepting video from other sources is going to be slower.
The final step in on-location involves exporting an XML descriptor file. That's right, an XML descriptor file. This is the file that will be used by other applications in conjunction with the video file. After on-location, the video will make its way through other applications, and the process is nearly seamless. In the past, files had to be rendered or completed in one application before they could be imported by the next. This took an enormous amount of time. Now Adobe uses these XML descriptor files to share information about the native files and eliminate the need to render a file until the end of the process. A given project's workflow might start in on-location. Frequently will start, in fact, in on-location. It could then move to Premiere or Encore or After Effects. There could be stops in Sound Booth for audio sweetening. The process might go directly to Sound Booth and then to After Effects and finally to Premiere. Then there could be some effects added by Photoshop. What's nice about all this is that you're not handcuffed into a rigid workflow that might not fit your working style or the needs of the project. After Effects is the tool that is used to create motion graphics and visual effects, but it can also be used to eliminate or obscure errors that were made earlier in the production process. For that reason, After Effects is often the final stop. The After Effects project can be exported in multiple formats so that the video can be used on a Blu-ray or standard DVD, or on the web, or even exported to film, if you're the kind of person who would be creating theatrical productions. One thing to keep in mind with the Adobe Video Suite is that in many cases you won't see real-time video during the production process. That's because real-time video requires a huge amount of processing power, a fast hard drive, and a nearly limitless supply of RAM. Even so, the applications do an acceptable job of keeping up with the video, even on a modest computer. And once exported, the video will be crisp, clear, clean, and smooth. The bottom line for CS4 video tools, the price of admission for video producers drops. Five cats. There's no question that Adobe's suite of video production tools is expensive. At $2,500, what else could it be considered? But wait a minute. Maybe there's a question about that. These kinds of tools would have cost hundreds of thousands of dollars as recently as the early 1990s. They are designed for professionals. But Adobe's video applications are truly within the financial reach of most independent producers and even some amateurs. If you'd like more information, visit the Adobe website, and you'll find a link to that site from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. In short circuits, the federal government finally takes cybersecurity seriously. It's relatively easy for somebody to gain access to your computer if what you have on your computer is worth the trouble. Stealing your financial information and your identity is fine for the common criminals who run organized crimes botnets, but breaking into corporate or government systems is where it begins to become really interesting. So it's good to see that the feds will have a cyber czar. CNN and Fox will probably go wild. MSNBC will run continuous loops. Even the nation's news organizations will probably overreact to feed the paranoia 
and of course their ratings. Fear sells, and it's hard to tell whether the journalists who get cybersecurity assignments are influenced more by their desire for airtime or their lack of real cyber understanding. The threat is real. A terrorist organization could cause some serious problems. But this is not an end-of-the-world situation. The Tsar will have fairly limited powers, and a major part of his or her portfolio might be to educate Americans about phishing, farming, rogue websites, and how to control their own destiny without falling prey to the ratings-enhancing scare stories the media is going to trot out. The Cyber Tsar will be a special assistant to the president, and a cyber directorate will be established within the National Security Council. The Tsar's access to the president would be through the NSC. In addition, the Tsar will work with the National Economic Council. These, I think, are reasonable, common-sense approaches to the problem because government and military officials understand that computer networks are constantly being probed for weaknesses. None of the ideas voiced this week by the president were new, but all of the initiatives are long overdue. Remember when it seemed that everybody thought that the combination of AOL and Time Warner was a good thing? How AOL, who many mistakenly seem to think invented the Internet, would transfigure that stodgy old Time Inc. AOL was even listed first on the company's nameplate. But then people wised up and realized that AOL wasn't really the Internet and that the Internet had a lot more to offer than AOL. So now Time Warner has decided to spin off AOL. Spin off. Could that be a synonym for flush? In my opinion, just like the cybersecurity initiative by the feds, this is an action that's long overdue. AOL will be headed by former Google advertising executive Tim Armstrong, who joined the company earlier this year in an effort to save AOL. AOL has been losing customers at about the same rate that the Titanic took on water. AOL's websites, though, are still popular, as is AIM, the instant messaging tool, even though many users access the service with a non-AOL IM client. Time Warner says it will purchase the 5% of AOL that it doesn't already own during the third quarter, then kick the company out the side door. And if you're wondering who owns the other 5%, uh, that would be Google. Time Warner's chief executive, Jack Buke, said this week the change will give AOL more focus and strategic flexibility. This may translate to something like, we're going to throw these guys into the water, and if they survive, that's great. If they don't, well, that's business or words to that effect. So who's in charge here? Remember the 2001 deal in which AOL spent nearly $150 billion to buy Time Warner? Remember the dot-com bubble? Well, this was a deal that never should have happened, and in retrospect, it made Penn Central look like a winning combination. As subscribers defected from AOL starting in 2002, the value of the company dropped and Time Warner absorbed nearly $100 billion, with a B, billion dollars in charges. That $150 billion company today has a value of about $27 billion. And those who are paying attention may have noticed that AOL is no longer part of the corporate name, hasn't been for quite a while. So is this the end of hubris as we knew it? 
Probably not. But AOL might now at least understand its position in the overall scheme of the Internet. AOL's nearly 27 million customers has shrunk to a little over 6 million. AOL is amazingly still profitable, but its operating profit for the first quarter of 2009, $150 million, was about half what it was in 2008. So, AOL, bon voyage. Do you Bing? Well, you don't yet Bing, anyway. Bing is Microsoft's new search tool, and it is aimed at Google. Remember Cool, spelled C-U-I-L, dot com? Cool now indexes something like 124 billion web pages, including techbiter.com, but it still hasn't made a dent in Google's market share. Microsoft's live search is going to be replaced by Bing, but Microsoft is speaking very softly about the new service. Microsoft has not fared well in battles so far with Google. Google is so ubiquitous that Microsoft's biggest challenge might be just finding a way to get people to try their new service. Just once, please. Microsoft CEO Steve Ballmer says he is optimistic about Bing, but he seems to understand that Microsoft has a very long way to go. Search is the key to the web. If you're looking for something, you undoubtedly go to Google or Microsoft Live or Yahoo. Last year, Microsoft tried to buy the number two search engine, Yahoo, but Yahoo snatched defeat from the jaws of victory, ran away from Microsoft, and immediately saw its market value plummet. Will Microsoft eventually buy Yahoo? Balmer says no, but the companies may find a way to create a partnership of some sort in the future, somehow. The Bing.com website is breathless. It entices you. Even though search is a pretty amazing thing, the current state of search engines has some equally amazing statistics. So far in 2009, there are four and a half websites created every second, and nearly half of all searches don't result in the answer that people are seeking. So we had an idea. Start over. And we did. It goes on like that. The Bing website continues in that vein for a long time. And when I finished reading it, I was out of breath. Microsoft has a history of depending on evolution. Despite its ability to invent new technologies, and it does have that ability, Microsoft is often credited with simply refining existing technologies. Senior Vice President of Microsoft's online audience and business group, Yusuf Mehdi, says that today's search can be made better. Bing will feature a table of contents, This will allow users to refine their searches, so you can concentrate on exactly what you're looking for. The result might be Google, only better. To tell for sure, we can only wait for Bing to be released and see how Google responds. That, by the way, should happen on this coming Wednesday, June 3rd. So to see for yourself, you'll need to visit www.bing, that's B-I-N-G, dot com. You might be wondering why Microsoft needs to do this. Well, here's why. Less than 9% of searches use Microsoft's live search. About 65% use Google. Microsoft doesn't want all of your money, but it does want to collect a few cents every time you use an Internet search tool. 
to do that, the company needs more than a 9% market share. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.